When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 82, Owain Gwyneth, the Prince of Wales. As we return to the story of Gwyneth, we must recognize that change was truly coming to the power dynamics in Wales. To this point, Doithbarth had was humbled nearly to extinction. Powys, as we will see, is not far from a similar fate, and only one independent Welsh kingdom was on the rise in Norman Britain. In 1137, Griffith ap died. We talked a lot over the previous couple of months about how his rise to power. Considered a persistent king of destiny or a plan of the Normans to weaken the power base of Powys. Both of these suggestions are interesting and have merit, but neither, of course, turned out the way either side arguing these points thought. The Normans, if they thought they were getting a pliant king, were in for a surprise. And the descendants might have been strong kings, but Griffith appears to have mostly just outlasted his contemporaries rather than being that particularly special or unique. The new dynasty of Aberfrau, established at Anglesey, continued to spread its influence and power as Henry I passed away and the chaos period, or the anarchy, began in England. The legitimate heir was Henry's son, William, but he had drowned in 1120 during the sinking of the white ship. This put Henry's legacy in a bind. At Henry's death, his legitimate heir was actually Matilda, the purported first queen of England, but at least was the empress of the Holy Roman Empire, and at this point remarried. But the power and the true king was claimed by her cousin Stephen, Immediately, this conflict between the two created friction that was only resolved after many years of civil war and eventually Stephen's death. In the midst of this revolt, the Norman marcher lords largely sided with Matilda, which meant that they fought against the king and could not seek his aid as the Welsh kings and lords began to plot their paths to independence. By 1136, Stephen had claimed the throne and much of the finances of England and Normandy, and as well as the blessings of the Pope. But the Empress Matilda and her husband, Geoffrey of Anjou, would bring with them powers of their own and an ability which will be shown quite clearly as we go along. They would also bring a new dynasty to the shores of England, one which would have lasting effect on Wales. For Geoffrey was a Plantagenet, and it would be his descendants that would finally destroy with the Welsh independence. In 1139, Matilda entered England with the support of her uncle, David, King of Scotland. She attempted to gain the crown, but failed, as the London crowds were not particularly fans of hers. But 
Once again, England was divided north and south, with the Scottish this time holding the north. However, in Normandy, her husband had actually had success in seizing the duchy and taking away a source of wealth from Stephen. In Wales, after Griffith's death, his two sons took his place as leader in the north. First was Cathwaller, the elder brother, who historian A. H. Williams called reckless and impulsive, came to power with his brother Owen. Two years prior to Matilda's arrival in England, Owen and Cadweller had been wreaking havoc around West Wales. They were burning castles across the West, including in Eastrigmarig, which was just east of Aberystwyth, along the Pilgrim's Path to the eventual Strata Florida Abbey. Originally, the area may have actually featured a palace to the Caradigian kings of old, but at this stage it had a Mutton Bailey castle in the valley. Owen would continue his pressure to the south, burning Lampeter and Humphrey's castle. Meanwhile, his allies from the south would actually burn Aberystwyth. These successes appeared to allow him to seize Caradigian away from the Normans, and at some point before 1143 he was given control of the area to his brother Cadwaller and to his son Howell. In the east, during the same period, the king of Powys fought to expand the borders into England, taking lands in Shropshire and killing its sheriff. They would eventually destroy Bromfield, a Norman stronghold in the south of the county. But as they reached their zenith, it appears the men of Powys began to fight amongst themselves, and various brothers would eventually find themselves in conflict with each other or with their own people, and only Madog was able to climb out the other side. This inability of Powys to push its advantage, as I pointed out previously, allowed Owen to continue to consolidate his power. Owen ap Griffith continued to become somewhat of an influence in the South as he continued to work with Doithbarth to try and reunite that major country together again. The Eastern Kingdoms diminished in the face of the rising English pressure as Stephen and Henry II would turn on Powys. As 1143 became a problematic year for Powys, it was not a great one for Owen. Cadwaller became unhappy with being under the thumb of the more acclaimed younger sibling and decided to go out on his own, first by killing their ally, Anharad ap Griffith, the king of Doithbarth. The king was set to marry the daughter of Owen, which likely would connect the two kingdoms even tighter as Owen was spreading his influence southward, obviously creating a much better ally with that political marriage, if nothing else. Uh, Angharad had been a key figure in the attacks on the Cardigan Castle in 1137, as well as the attack against Aberystwyth. This key death caused a split in the brothers that saw Owen seize Cadweller's holdings in the south and give them to his son Hewell around 1144. Cadwaller would seek to reclaim his holdings with the backing of Irish mercenaries, but it never came to a fight as Cadwaller negotiated a return of his lands sometime around 1145. Professor Carrie Mond suggests that Anhaurad's siblings must have been given some kind of compensation to repair the alliance, as they never seemed to have sought vengeance on Cadwaller. This, however, may have partially been satiated when Cadwaller himself was captured by his mercenaries, who were not terribly happy when their plunder turned to nothing. Of course, we'll note later on in this episode that Cadwaller is a pretty much would have been best if he'd have been taken out at this stage, because he will be a continual pain in the side of his brother 
going forward. Uh, eventually, these mercenaries would be bought off and Cadwaller returned to the good graces of his sibling. Meanwhile, as the north looked southward, the men of the marches strained against their Norman overlords. The reason Owen was able to seize Carrigidian in the first place was that Richard Fitzgilbert, the lord of Carrigidian, was killed by Morgan and Orweth, who were rulers in Gluinig in 1136. They were able to military leaders who then seized Carleon and Usk and much of the old kingdom of Gwent. The fact this happened as King Stephen was starting to face Matilda likely made it far easier. In the south, the sons of Griffith Apris also captured Doivid, reuniting the kingdom of Doithbarth for the first time since William the Conqueror. The Welsh kingdoms had reached their highest point in many decades. One could not help but to see Owen's influence as being paramount to these successes. Some scholars feel he was heavily involved in the rise of Gwyneth in the last decade of the life of his father, setting the stage for this rise as the premier king in the Welsh hegemony. The marcher lords had also been sent to the south of Glamorgan. Almost all the rest of Wales was free of Norman conquerors, and it would be short-lived but important period for showing how the anarchy was creating opportunities for the old British kingdoms to take hold of their territories. However, it would not last. Gwent went back to the Normans as Morgan and Orwith were recognized as lords in Gwent by Robert of Gloucester, which meant he secured the southeast against the rising tide of Welsh rebellions and, of course, returned them to his uh, control. However, Stephen's losses to King David in the north of England meant he could spend little time worrying about his western lands. This left the marcher lords pretty much to fend for themselves, likely fomenting the eventual rebellions against him from Robert and Ranoff, the Earl of Chester, who were two of the ones who turned their ire on the king. The 1140s, on the other hand, were a good decade for Welsh rulers. In Powys, Madoc continued his eastward expansion, claiming Austria, building a castle there in 1149. Owen also marched east in the north, having secured his southern border. He took Rudland in 1146 and then went on to destroy the castle at Mould. This effectively put him at the borders of the old edges of the office dike and allowed him to have nothing but open territory in front of him in Chesser. This sent the Earl Ranoff to seek help from Stephen only to find himself arrested instead, of course his lack of loyalty being part of the problem. This emboldened Owen further and he invaded Chesser Plains but was eventually beaten back. Further progress was halted by the internal strife of the early 1150s as Owen sent his son Kinnan and, again, Cadwaller into exile. These would only find their way back into his good graces later, but this time they were sent to England. In this period of disruption, Madoc reclaimed Caradigian from Howell. Yet even with this, as King Stephen's tumultuous reign came to an end, Wales had three very strong kings in Owen, Madoc, and Rhys in Doithbarth. These three, rather than falling into the usual tendency of previous Welsh rulers, allied with each other to force the English to deal with them together rather than using themselves against each other, as often had happened in the past. This, of course, wouldn't last and is a temporary 
achievement, but it still shows that there was an ability by the Welsh to unite. Part of what probably drove this from a cultural perspective was at the same time, Geoffrey of Monmouth was creating his ancient history for the Welsh, this history of the kings of Britain, as it's called. All of this sudden discussion of kings of the Welsh who were not some poor edge to the richer Anglo-Norman dominance, but rather that they were inheritors of the legacy of King Arthur. It meant that they weren't some poor backwater place, but actually keys to a legacy that was going farther than they could even imagine. They were, in other words, destined for greater things than what they knew. In 1153, on the back of 20 years of winning wars against the Normans, there was a lot of reasons to think that this wasn't completely a silly idea. In fact, the Normans themselves were fearing the rise of a new Arthur and were worried that the Welsh would take back England and return the name of the land to Britain rather than them defeating them, as of course would go on later. This, of course, changes quite dramatically over the next century, but it's interesting to see just how close the Welsh had come to really putting some fear into the English monarchy and driving a wedge that would possibly see them return to dominance. Owen, therefore, led this revival. He would receive a great deal of the credit as well. This was about, of course, the fact that this is all written from Gwyneth's perspective, but the reality of it is one could argue that he definitely was the larger part of it. He supported the other kings, helped them in their wars, and typically would come to their aid when needed, at least to this point. And in the meantime, they would come to his. And so, with that unity, we're able to keep the English basically out and slowly expand. Those changes wouldn't last, obviously, as we mentioned. But still, that's quite a level of coordination that we haven't seen for almost 100 years at this point in Wales. And that in and of itself, I think, is showing that he was making ground and was perceived as a good leader. Uh, Not just from a military perspective, but also from a political perspective, as he could negotiate these great alliances with these groups and make it stick even when his own siblings were fighting against him and causing problems for him during these alliances. This, of course, was all about to change with the arrival of Henry II to the throne of England. Henry consolidated his power over the next few years. From 1154 with the death of Stephen to 1157, in fact, seeing off a lot of the threat to the north from the Scottish, and then in 1157, setting his sights on bringing Wales back into the hegemony. First, he dealt with Madog. Rather than defeating him, he treated with him and gave legitimacy to the Powys conquest to the east, but importantly, also set up a new ally against the more dangerous enemy in Gwyneth. As Henry marched north, now having broken the hegemony which had existed for 20 years, the men of Powys joined his ranks. The Welsh unity was once again broken, and it would never be as united, at least not in independence. Owen was able to defeat Henry at Ilu, giving him at least one major victory over his enemy. Leading up to the battle, however, Henry had been 
destroying churches and raiding all sorts of villages and farmsteads across North Wales. And by doing so had created ire amongst the North Welsh who may not have been on his side or against Owen at that point. And in fact, 40 years after this event, uh, Gerald of Wales uses this as an example of what Owen was quoted to have said to his men before they actually attacked Henry. He said, My opinion, indeed, by no means agrees with yours, for we ought to rejoice at the conduct of our adversary, for, unless supported by divine assistance, we are far inferior to the English, and they, by their behavior, have made God their enemy, who is able most powerfully to avenge both himself and us. We therefore most devoutly promise God that we will henceforth pay greater reverence than ever to churches and holy places. Of course, this is coming from someone who is himself a holy man, but the idea that the Henry broke some taboo of the way you fight a war certainly hangs over this discussion point, and it will again in a bit when we talk about his response to him losing at another situation. Now, by the end of 1157, Henry had forced peace on Owen, and once again Gwyneth was brought to acknowledge the English king as their overlord. Powys, once again, was returned as an enemy and continued to try and gain lands from their former ally, including attacking some lands that Gwyneth had seized in the past and taking them away. Likely, realizing there was little he could do but wait, Owen instead gave in to Powys' demands and fell into supporting the English in attacks against former allies to the south in 1159. The soldiers, of course, were led by Kinnan and Cadwallar, once again returned thanks to their support of Henry during his expedition against Gwyneth, and likely to support their restoration and pay for it. With the death of Madog in 1160, Owen, now himself fairly elderly, him being 60 himself, was able to take power back from Wales, and in the chaos in Powys, as divisions continued to grow, was able to pick off northern areas that he had lost to Powys, and gathered some more, which he didn't necessarily have before then. Henry, in 1163, forced Owen and the king of Doithbarth to do homage to him. This was likely the first time the Welsh had recognized the formal overlordship of the English king, certainly in Norman times. This was also meant that there were changes coming to that relationship. And yet, still, at age 63, Owen was not happy to be a vassal of the English. By 1165, Henry once again sought to bring Owen to heel, but this time weather and the Welsh mountains made life miserable for the English, forcing Henry to retreat and then famously mutilate his Welsh captives in a break with typical protocol, again going back to the fact that he was doing something against what was expected of him at the time. And certainly his tendencies to be brutal and to carry out these kind of vengeful things makes one wonder if that influenced Edward at all and created some of the problems that they would have later with him. Owen would then take for the first time the title Prince of Wales. In Welsh, Twyasog Cymru, or Leader of Wales. 
This was a change from the past where the kings of Wales were the dominant title for the leaders of the Welsh. This, and of course before that, was king of Britain. This had the additional advantage, however, of having been recognized from the English crown, and shows just how far Owen had come over his life. While he would still continue to resist Henry and continue to resist the English as much as possible, still he was recognized as being a leader and someone worth working with and against, someone as a recognized power in this area. When he was born, his father had only tenuously been in charge of parts of the kingdom of Gwyneth. Now, 65 years later, he was acknowledged as the leader of his nation and his people. The descendants of Rodri the Great were still a power to be reckoned with long after the majority of their enemies and allies, for that matter, had long since disappeared. Owen had risen to dominance. He was the one who commissioned the life of his father to be written. He was the one who, in all likelihood, established the Chronicles of the Princes and different documents that we have now. It was his coordination and organization and abilities which allowed Gwyneth to survive even past the times when other kingdoms would fall and falter in Wales. And it would be his descendants that would control the Welsh hegemony for the next hundred years. And realistically, without him, I don't think they survive much longer than Powys or Doithbarth do in the next century. And realistically, don't become the pain that Edward has to destroy in order to take back the title Prince of Wales. This is actually the first time we really see the title Prince of Wales. But not just that, but the idea that they were a Prince of Wales rather than a King of Britain. The idea that the Welsh or the Cymru were one people united by culture and by ideals rather than a part of a greater Britain certainly comes up at this point. And this is legitimately where we get the Welsh nation from. It isn't really something that we understand before this, simply because at this point, the Normans and their successors have now pushed what were the Britons to the fringes of Britain. They are no longer the dominant people, no longer the dominant culture, but more than that, they're not even themselves seeing themselves as part of that culture anymore. They are now Welsh, they're now Cornish, they're now, you know, a part of Scotland, a part of those nations, or even Brittany, and no longer a part of a greater British country. And I think that's a major step in the evolution of Wales. Because I think most of our modern understanding of Wales is built in this time period. It doesn't come before this in the same way. I mean, before this, mostly, I think people considered themselves people of Gwyneth, men of Powys, you know, uh, people of Gluissing and Glamorgan and Morganui, not of this thing we call Wales or Cymru. And I think that's one of the most important things that happens at this point. This is one of the most important things that I think we develop at this stage. Certainly there are other hints that this was coming, but I think this is where it firmly is established at the 
the time when Jeffrey Monmouth is creating this ideal, this something special about his country, something to look up to, when a few years later you'll have Gerald of Wales writing about the Welsh as, again, a distinct cultural group, a distinct people, separate of the English, separate of the Scottish, separate of the Irish. And this definition and cultural identity will set firmly into place at this stage. And I think in that way, it creates this unity that we have later on that really doesn't exist the same way before this, or at least not in this perspective. While, of course, the Welsh have the same language, they have the same cultural identity long before this, I think the naming and the understanding of that comes about at this point. And I think it is through the fact that Owen lasts 70 years, spends over 30 years as king of Gwyneth, and the predominant king in this area. Even as there are powerful kings in Powys and in the south, they do to some degree acknowledge Owen's overlordship. And I think that in and of itself is what is amazing in this circumstance and what creates the reason why we remember this dynasty so well and why it becomes so important in the next hundred years to the understanding of how Wales and, let's be honest, Britain goes forward. And of course, at the same time, we have this key ingredient to the Plantagenets arriving and the way that their relationship will change, not just with the Welsh, but with everyone on the island. And certainly their methodologies and ideals will change the way England, Scotland, and Wales look at each other. And with that, we'll call it into this episode. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your kind words. Thank you again to my Patreon supporters who help fund my podcast and help me be able to keep this podcast going. And I look forward to talking to you all again next time. Take care. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.